Now, as we progress through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to chapter 2 that deals with the wise men and their visit to the Christ child. Matthew chapter 2, and I'll read verse 1. Matthew 2 and verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, we need some background information. And the first thing you need to see in the text is that Herod is king when Jesus uh, was born and when the wise men visited. Now, here's what you need to understand, and it can be confusing, but I don't think you'll be confused, is that Herod was king of Israel from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C., Herod was king of Israel from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. And that's when he died in 4 B.C. So that means that Jesus uh, had to be born sometime earlier than 4 B.C. Herod's death. So this probably takes place sometime around 6 or 7 B.C. And this is where the confusion sets in. Because we have our calendar, and we divide our calendar between, uh, our historical calendar between B.C. and A.D. And that would seem to indicate that Jesus should have been born either in zero or one, you know. And yet he was born during the lifetime of Herod, and Herod died in 4 B.C. So what's, what's going on here? Well, in the 6th century, the Western world changed its calendar from the Roman calendar to what they called the Christian calendar that we use today, AC, AD, BC. And the man who organized that Christian calendar didn't have information about Herod's death or his life. He was not, they, people were not as educated then as we are today, and they didn't have the resources, and this man simply made a mistake in the calendar. So if he had the information we had today, he would have gotten it right, and it wouldn't be 2012 today, it would be something like 2006, or something like that. So just think, you've lived longer than you really... uh, Maybe the calendar indicates, but anyway, okay, so you understand that, so our calendar today is uh, off by seven years historically. Now, that's not a big thing, so don't let that get you hung up. Now, the second thing you need to know is those people who visit Christ are wise men, and the word for wise men is magi. And some of your Bibles have magi. When you translate that into English, that's magic, magicians. Okay. Now, don't think of magicians like Houdini or David Copperfield, not those kinds of magicians. Magi were spiritual leaders and advisors to kings. And these men were advisors to kings who lived in the east. Notice it says men from the east came. East of what? (laughs) So you need to figure this out. Now, the context is they came to Jerusalem, so it was east of Jerusalem. But here's the problem. East of Jerusalem was another kingdom. 
Uh, that's uh, where the Parthians lived. And the Parthians were the enemies of Rome. Rome didn't control that area. It's just like we don't control North Korea. They're beyond our control. Rome controlled a large section of the Western world, but their eastern border was on Israel. Israel was the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And that's why there were a lot of tr troops in the state of Israel. It's not that the Jews were such frightening people. They had to have a bunch of soldiers there. Rome didn't have a bunch of soldiers everywhere else. They had soldiers, piles of soldiers, in Israel and especially in Jerusalem. Why? Because that was the eastern border of their empire and they had to protect their borders from invasion from the Parthians. And that's where the modern day Iran is. Uh, that's where Persia used to be and Babylon used to be. So they have come from outside the Roman Empire and these are men who are advisors to kings in this other kingdom we don't know exactly which king that they were advising at this time and uh, they're not subject to Caesar they're not subject to the Roman government so they come across the border and uh, they are coming to find this guy Jesus now there's all kinds of theories whether these are Zoroastrians and all that kind of stuff we just don't know but Zoroastrianism was a world religion at that time it's still a world religion today who worshipped the god Mazda remember the old Mazda commercials the other cars go ping 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 but the Mazda goes um now that shows you whether you really you know, I always wanted to get a Mazda because I wanted a car that went hum <laughs> And they had a different kind of an engine. And then Mazda changed and they got an old pinging engine now. Did you know? It's still in existence, but no one's interested in it. So uh, Mazda was the name of their god if they were Zoroastrians. And that's who they served. And they believed they got inspiration from him. And they served the king of this eastern kingdom. Now, notice what else it said. When they get there, verse 2, they say... Where is he who has been king, who has been born king of the Jews? Now, I want you to notice something. We always assume they're asking this question of Herod, don't we? Let's say they ask Herod this. You just don't walk into the king's castle or the king's palace or the king's office and start talking to him. We just make that assumption that they are talking to Herod. Then I don't believe they're talking to Herod, and I'll show you why as we go through the text. But they probably get into some, in with some people who are knowing, and they ask this question. Maybe other religion, maybe religious advisors of Herod, uh, their equivalents within the Roman Empire, and they say, "Where is he who was born king of the Jews?" Now, notice the phrase in verse two: "Born king of the Jews." Now, who was the king of the Jews at this time? Herod was king of the Jews. But he wasn't born the king of the Jews. He was appointed king of the Jews. And this is where history is so important. Herod became the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, in 40 B.C. He was appointed by Mark Antony. 
Now, George Smith knows Anthony and Cleopatra. Remember, Anthony and Cleopatra were lovers. Well, he knows nothing about history, but he smokes these cigars called Anthony and Cleopatra. <laughs> and that's what he thinks about when I'm teaching up here. And he, okay, so anyway. Uh, in 40 B.C., after uh, Julius Caesar died, remember Brutus killed Julius Caesar, something like 44 B.C. Well, Mark Antony and Octavian, Julius Caesar's nephew, are co-ruling the empire, and they need somebody in Israel to rule that land for them. And so they choose Herod, who's their friend. And they bring Herod's name before the Roman Senate. And he is appointed, Herod is appointed, the king of the Jews. And he is going to rule the land of Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire. He's a, what we call a client king. He works for Rome. He's appointed by Rome. Now, when he took office in 40 B.C., it took him three years to gain control of that region. Because the Jews were in a state of rebellion. Jews are always in conflict. Never been a time in history when they have not been in conflict and when they have occupation troops there, they're always fighting the occupation troops. And here this man is appointed their king. They didn't choose him. And it took him and his troops, Herod's troops, three years to gain control over that land of Israel. So what we would say is Herod was a very oppressive king. Uh, he slaughtered the Jews. They got in his way, he just slaughtered them. The Jews hated him. When he died in 4 BC, they had a great big celebration. The people went into the streets and celebrated. Have we seen that recently in the Arab Spring where a leader dies, and guess what? Everybody goes into the streets and they celebrate. They said he was an oppressive leader. That's what they did when Herod died. The Jewish people hated Herod. For one reason, he was only a half Jew. <laughs> he was half Gentile and half Jew. And the second thing is that he was loyal to Rome and not loyal to God. They didn't like that. He wasn't representing God. He was representing Caesar. The king of the Jews is supposed to be God's representative. He's representing Rome. And he was appointed by Gentiles, and therefore the Jews did not see him as their legitimate king. They saw him as a usurper. Now you see why you need this background material in order to really understand the text? It's so essential. So here's this usurper who's appointed the king of the Jews, and the, these guys come in verse 2 and they say, where is he who is what? Where's the rightful king? Where's the one who is not appointed but is the legitimate king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, east of the empire, and we have come to worship him, which means to bow down and give our allegiance to him. So, the reason they come is they see this called his star in the east. Now, stars, uh, many people in those days were in, into astrology and they looked at the skies for, for signs, and the rise of a great star often uh, was a sign or a signal 
that some noble person had been born. And they see this star and they call it his star, which seems to indicate that possibly they had some knowledge of Old Testament scriptures where uh, Balaam the prophet said, out of Jacob shall come a star. Remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Out of Israel shall come a star. And Daniel the prophet, uh, these people were Persians in background. They may have understood some of Daniel's prophecy about a Messiah who rises up and is going to set up God's kingdom on earth. But anyway, they have uh, interpreted this heavenly sign as a sign or a signal that the king of the Jews is going to be born. Now their goal for coming, it says, is to worship him, which don't think of worship in the sense that we think of worship. Where you're going to sing and you know, you're going to make, give an offering. It means we've come here to bow down and pledge our allegiance to him. Okay, That's what we're going to do. Bow down and pledge our allegiance to him. Now, uh, that's not good news if you uh, happen to live in the Roman Empire and you got these guys from another empire who are advisors to that king and we are these guys are going to give their allegiance to this newborn king looks like they're going to form an alliance and when this guy comes into power it's going to be us and him against the Roman Empire so that could be very dangerous couldn't it? so what you have here is something that could be determined as a threat and I think that it is Am I still on? I am. Okay. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king, notice this, heard this. Sounds like it comes in second hand, doesn't it, probably? He gets a report of it. He was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Uh, now, we always make another common assumption, and most commentators do, and I'm going to really break with those commentators today. We assume that the phrase, all of Jerusalem was troubled with him, refers to common people. I don't think that has anything to do with common people. I think what this means is uh, that Herod was troubled, and the ruling class, those who are over all of Jerusalem, the Jewish elites who worked with Herod, hand in hand with Herod, and cast their lot with Herod, when they got news that these Magi were coming and trying to find this king, and they were going to cast their allegiance with him. It says, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem, probably the leaders of Jerusalem, were troubled with him. Why? Because if word got out that one had been born the king of the Jews, guess what the people would have done? Common people would have revolted against Herod and have pledge their allegiance to the, the one who's the legitimate king, and they do not want that to happen, and I believe that's why they were troubled, because it posed a threat to their regime. Now, rumors were circulating around this time that God was going to raise up a deliverer, a Messiah, who would uh, deliver the people, Israel, from Rome, so the atmosphere was ripe for revolution. I think that Herod and his cohorts are very troubled over this. So look what it says in verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, see these are those who represent the people, supposedly, but they cast a lot with Herod, together he inquired of them where the Christ was born. Now notice, 
Very interestingly, in verse 2, the wise men ask, where is born the king of the Jews? But in verse 4, Herod asks, where is born what? The Christ, the Messiah. So, in Herod's mind, he's equating the king of the Jews with Messiah. And that's, he, he knows that if, Messiah, if this one who's born is Messiah, uh, he's in trouble. Now, the phrasing is very interesting also. Notice in verse 2, it says, where is he? Where is he? And in verse 4, where is the Christ? Two questions regarding where. Question 1, where is the king of the Jews? Is asked by the Magi. The second question, where is he? Is asked by Herod in verse 4. So they're both asking the same question. Now look at verse 5. And so, that's Herod's advisors said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, which is written by the prophet, and this is the prophet Micah, but unto you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So, Herod's advisors, who are described as priests, chief priests, the ones who sort of ran the temple affairs, and scribes who are students of the law, meaning the uh, Old Testament law, they looked at Micah 5 2 as a prophecy regarding the Messiah. It was considered a messianic scripture. They knew exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. Now notice what the Messiah would do at the end of verse 6. He would shepherd God's people. Uh, is that what Herod does? No, he rules with a rod of iron. He's not like a shepherd. Uh, and he rules with military force. Okay. So, the Messiah, who's called King of the Jews, Christ, and Ruler, in verses 2, 4, and 6, is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. And that's where Ruth and Boaz lived after they got married. This is where Jacob buried uh, Rachel. And so, Bethlehem. Now look at verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Notice again, secretly. He doesn't want the word to get out. This is why I think this is all being done in hushed, hushed tones. And uh, he knows if the word gets out, he's in trouble. So he wants to find out, and he finds out from them, when was the first time you saw that star? And they said, maybe two or three years ago. Now, why does Herod want to know that? He said to them, he sent them to Bethlehem, verse 8, and he said, go search carefully for that young child. And when you have found him, bring him back, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. That's why I want to know. They, they may even say, what do you want to know that for? Said, well, when, you know, I just wanted to know, I forget how old he is, you know, and I want to come down and pledge my allegiance to him too, just like you are. We're on the same side in this thing. Well, we know that's a lie, don't we? Why did he want to know all this? 
Well, we'll find out later he wants to kill. He wants to find out if it was two years ago that the star appeared, he's going to kill every baby that was born within the past two years. He wants to make sure he kills this young baby who's rightfully the king. And he doesn't want to miss him, so he's just going to slaughter all of them. So he's a liar here. He's really not interested in giving his allegiance to the rightful king. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So they came and they stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now this is the first time in the text that it says the star moved. We always assume that the star moved from the beginning. It could have been that they just saw the star and recognized it as a sign, and based on some previous information, thought it was the sign of a birth of a king. But now, this is the first time it says the star actually moved. And in fact, when it says in verse uh, 9, when they heard the king, they departed, and look at this next word, and behold, the star which they had seen these went before them. It was a, look, there, look, sort of a shock. Took them by surprise. So maybe this uh, star wasn't moving all along, but anyway, they, it comes back. Maybe they lost sight of it, and it comes back, and uh, it directs them to the place where the child was born. Now, moving stars is, are not even uh, unusual in Roman history. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid tells the story of uh, a star in the sky that Aeneid follows, and it stops over the place where the, where the empire of Rome was founded, where, the, where Rome itself was founded. Aeneid said, I'd like to know where Rome was originally founded. And suddenly he looks up and the star starts moving. And this is in Virgil's Aeneid. And he follows the star and it stops over a place where Rome was founded. Now, did that really happen? It was probably not. I don't think it happened. Uh, that's mythology. But Rome claimed that it happened. Rome had heavenly signs that it represented God. It's God. And maybe Matthew is saying, guess what? And our God has given us signs. Uh, we just don't know. But anyway, they end up in the city of Bethlehem. We have signs too. <clears throat> Look at verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Notice that Joseph is not there. He's probably working. Notice they're in a house. They're no longer in the cave. They're not in the stable. Notice he's no longer a babe. Now he's a child. The Greek word for child here means not infant, but toddler, somebody who's about two or three years of age. And so some time has elapsed uh, between his birth and these, these events. And it says in verse 11, And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, uh, precious metal, uh, frankincense, uh, which is basically incense, and myrrh, which is a 
another type of uh, perfume or aroma spice. Now, these gifts are the kind of gifts that you would give to a king uh, on a royal visit. How do we know that? Because in Suetonius, who was a Roman historian, he tells about a group of kings that come and visit King Nero. Remember Nero who fiddled while Rome burned? And this king and his caravan came and they bowed down before Nero and they gave him the exact same kind of gifts. So this, when this is written here, we shouldn't be trying to figure out all the little details of frankincense, you know, myrrh. All we need to know is these are the kinds of gifts you give a king. And so they brought from the royal treasure, and I imagine they had a tremendous caravan with them. They're not three people on camels, like you see in, you know, uh, Christmas scenes. They probably had, you know, 50 or 60 attendants with them. Carts wheeling uh, with food and, and drink and the gifts and changes of clothes and everything they needed on their trip. It was going to last maybe a year or two to get there. So they present these gifts to the newborn king. And then verse 12 says, And then being divinely warned with a, in, with a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now this is the second time a dream's been mentioned. The first dream to Joseph. The second dream to the Magi. As a result of the first dream, Joseph obeys the dream and marries his wife to be. As a result of this dream, the Magi obey the advice of now, let me give you some lessons that we can learn from uh, this short passage. This would be lessons that Matthew's readers, 60, 70, 80 years after the fact, would have derived from what they've just been read. Okay? Lesson number one, I think, is that natural revelation can only take you so far in your spiritual quest. Natural revelation can take you only so far in your spiritual quest. They follow a star. That's natural revelation. It can only get them to Jerusalem. Herod says, where is he going to be born? And guess what? They have to go to the scriptures. Scriptures can take you the rest of the way. Uh, natural revelation cannot take you all the way to Christ. It can only take you so far. Other religions. There's good in other religions. I'm not like people who say everything about other religions is bad. Other religions have good things in them. They can only take you so far. But, to get all the way to the end of your journey, of your spiritual quest, you need to have supernatural revelation. You need to have God's scripture that specifically directs you to Jesus. Second of all, I want you to notice this. Herod's advisors knew the scriptures. They had the special revelation. But knowing the scriptures is not enough. You have to act on the scriptures. The wise men acted on the scriptures. Herod's advisors should have followed them right along <laughs> over to Bethlehem. They couldn't even care because they knew that Herod had a plot to kill that baby. They weren't concerned about really uh, giving their allegiance to Christ. They were more concerned about keeping their power over the people. Okay. 
The third thing I notice in this passage is that the people that you least expected are the ones that find Christ. The people that you least expected find Christ. I bet you Buddy Angel's friends ten years ago would have said he's the least possible candidate for coming to Christ. He's a rough character back in those days. People that knew me when I grew up and I was a teenager said, boy, I know one person will never become a Christian. That's that street character. But guess what? The people you least expect, expect it, seek and find Christ. The people that you would most expect it, Jewish scribes. Don't seek him. And don't find him. See, we don't know who it is that's going to seek him and find him, and that's why we have to preach the gospel to everybody. <laughs> we don't know who that those people are that are going to seek out Christ, and so we preach the gospel, and God will draw people to Christ. And then a, a fourth thing I think we need to know, especially for Matthew's audience, is that they were being pressured by their Jewish friends not to associate with Gentiles. If you were in our introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, you remember I dealt with that. They were under pressure from their Jewish friends to disassociate with Gentiles, and Matthew is saying the ones that sought Jesus were the Gentiles. If Jews would have associated with those Gentiles, they would have found Christ. So don't allow pressure from your friends and your family. Say, I don't have anything to do with those people, the Gentiles. They're dirty, you know, but we need to just keep our own uh, faith. Uh, what you need to do is you need to have a relationship with the Gentiles because it was the Gentiles who were the first witnesses to the Messiah. So I think from those lessons, these are important lessons. And then what we're going to do in... Next week is we're going to hit verse 13, the flight to Egypt, where in verse 13 it says, And when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and we're going to have our third dream, third of five dreams right here in these sections. You're going to see five dreams. We've seen two of them, one to Joseph, one to the wise men, and now we're going to see a third one to Joseph, and he again is going to obey the instructions in the dream. So uh, that's where we'll pick up next week in chapter 2 and verse 13. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a new year. Uh, help us to uh, resolve this first day of the new year. To give our allegiance fully to you. To be more faithful in our study of Scripture and in our relationships, our positive relationships with other people. For some people, the only Christ they see will be us. They just look upon us and we're hateful and we're selfish and we're standoffish uh, and they will not find Christ. Oh Lord, help us to be good reflections of Christ in this year ahead. In His name we pray. Amen.